Hello, and welcome to Gamer to Gamer. I'm your host, James Intracasso. This is a podcast where I interview pros in the gaming industry about their careers and the games they love to play. Today's guest is Wade Rocket. Wade is a freelance editor, designer, and marketing guru who has worked on projects with Wizards of the Coast, Cobalt Press, Pelgrane Press, and more. That's right, this man has touched D&D, Pathfinder, and 13th Age. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. Alright, here's the interview with Wade. Alright everybody, I am here with the one and only Wade Rocket. He is the man, the myth, the legend, uh, and he does exist. He's here on Skype with me right now. Wade, how are you today? I am doing great, James. How are you? I'm doing very well, very well. Wade, why don't you uh, tell all the people out there in the ether some of the things that you've worked on? For many years, I've been uh, mainly behind the scenes in tabletop role-playing games. Uh, I worked on PR and marketing for Cobalt Press, and then from there I went into uh, PR and uh, marketing for 13th Age, which led to more work with Hellgrain Press. And so, uh, you know, if if there was a blog post by Cobalt staff or a tweet from at 13th Age, then that was almost certainly me. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but that also led to other kinds of work. So I've done some editing for Wizards of the Coast for 4th Edition D&D. Uh, there are a few uh, dragon and dungeon articles with my name on them as editor. Uh, I've got to work on Dark Sun and Greyhawk uh, with them. And I've got to work with all kinds of great folks like Greg Bilsland and uh, Stan Brown and Chris Sims. Most recently, in, in terms of my non-PR, non-marketing stuff, um, I'm starting to get some stuff published um, with my name near the cover. Uh, <laughs> I, was, uh, I contributed a piece of short fiction for the Pathfinder Adventure Anthology, um, Tales of the Old Margrave. Uh, which was out from Cobalt Press a few years ago, and that was a nice. a piece of a piece of fiction that I pitched uh, as as a patron of that project. And uh, Tim Connors liked it so much that he made it the introduction to the book, which was very cool. That's um, awesome. Yeah. Oh, it's it, well, nothing really beat. I mean, it was it was nice to see you know my name in print and something that I'd written in an actual book. But um, it, it was really cool when on the Paizo boards, somebody talked about how they were using the thing that I had written in their campaign and were and had an NPC telling the story that I'd written to the characters. And that just absolutely blew me away. <laughs> that is amazing. And I can't wait to hear more about your professional career. But first, take yes. us all the way back. When was the first time you laid hands on a tabletop RPG? What was it? Where were you? How did you get introduced? That was Advanced Dungeons and Dragons First Edition. Uh, the year was 1980, I believe, uh, and a friend of mine in junior high. Uh, well, uh, so 1980. Um, for those of you who who weren't there, uh, <laughs> role playing games were actually a huge fad at the time, like Space Invaders or Rubik's Cube and stuff like that. So um, it was a really exciting time to be playing D and D because it was something that everybody knew about and there was a lot of buzz about it. And so a friend of mine, uh, got a D and D, um, player's handbook, dungeon master's guide, monster manual. And I think deities and demigods had just come out 
it was uh, it was pretty much brand new, and it still had the um, Melnobodean mythos and the Cthulhu mythos in it. And so he invited me to play, and actually, I was his only player. Um, and we played kind of a solo campaign, and we had kind of odd rules. Uh, as as fourteen year old boys, we were very energetic and violent, and so whenever it came time for combat, we would actually like hit each other with plastic swords and then roll dice. <laughs> um, so when people, when third parties would join in our game, they were a little surprised to find that they were suddenly under attack um, and <laughs> people really didn't stay. But then I, I found other DMs and uh, GMs and uh, learned other ways to play. So that was my first, was, uh, was AD&D, first edition. And from there, uh, I started reading Dragon Magazine and the reviews and ads turned me on to other RPGs. Uh, so Call of Cthulhu, I found out, was its own game. And I, I snatched that up and, and got into H.P. Lovecraft. Um, I started playing Champions based on a review in Dragon. And so Champions and Call of Cthulhu actually became my go-to games for me and my friends through high school and early college. And then I moved away and left my gaming group behind. And I never really picked up another gaming group until actually just about, uh, I don't know, eight years ago. Um, so through most of the uh, late 80s and through the 90s, I was actually only part of the hobby just by skimming the bookshelves and seeing what was out, but I wasn't actually playing anything for ages. So you're there, you're playing all the different tabletop RPGs, it sounds like, that you can get your hand on, basically. Well, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't play everything. My, my modus operandi was um, I played Champions in Call of Cthulhu, but I bought everything I could lay my hands on. So I had this huge library of you know Justice Inc. and uh, the James Bond RPG and um, gosh, what was it? Dragon Quest? I think and oh. Stormbringer and just just tons and tons of games. And I would get excited about them and have my friends roll up characters, but I would never get around to running campaigns. <laughs> um, although, although I did actually uh, run a very successful, uh, not so much a campaign, but just a, a series of uh, teenagers from outer space games, um, which was a, a huge amount of fun. That sounds amazing. I what is that game? I've never even heard of it. Oh yeah, Teenage Mutant Space or TFOS um, <laughs> came out in the mid '80s, I think, and um, it's a very slapstick comedy type game. And you don't die in it. Uh, instead of dying, you fall down. So when you take <laughs> enough damage, you're just kind of out of the game for a couple of minutes until you can get your wits together. And uh, and basically, it, it was an anime game. Um, mm. which I didn't know at the time because living in Las Vegas, which was where I, I grew up, uh, in the eighties pre-internet, like all the, you know, culture just doesn't flow as, as freely, um, as it does now. And so anime, you know, aside from battle of the planets or uh, whatever happened to be on TV in the afternoons or Sunday mornings, I mean, I, I was just a rumor. It was just something I'd heard of that some people had seen. But um, then later on, when I discovered, uh, you know, anime, then it's like, oh, yeah, this is basically Yorosai Yatsura, the game. <laughs> I just didn't know it at the time. Um, and it's a huge amount of fun. And you can still get it today um, in PDF form. And it's just a really great, fast, fun uh, RPG, very much like Toon. In fact, it may be Toon may run the same system. I'm not 100 percent sure. Mm -hmm. But that is that is a very explicitly a, a cartoony Warner Brothers style uh, game. Did you read everything that you had when you bought stuff or were you just collecting it? Um, but, you know, like, were you actually consuming everything that you were buying? 
back then I read most everything that I bought. Uh, now these days that bug has bit me again because I got back into role-playing games when fourth edition D and D came out and a friend asked me to join his campaign. Mm. I, I played some one shots, but this is the first time somebody had asked me to join an ongoing campaign since again, since I was in high school. Uh, and so recently I've just started buying games again, except this time I don't read them because I find that, you know, when I was 14 to 17, I was much more of a voracious reader of rules and now I don't like reading rule books as much, but I love having games. <laughs> so, <laughs> so once again, I'm building up to having this this big uh, you know bookshelf full of uh, RPGs, which <laughs> many of which I would like to run someday eventually. But it would really help if I could run the rule, learn the rules. Oh, sure. Well, you know, part of the fun of RPGs is is not knowing some of the rules and making them up on the fly, right? You know. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely, and and that's something that I've come to grips with because one of the things that kind of kept me from running for a long time um, was that, I mean, recently, since I got back into the hobby, was thinking, well, I don't, I don't know all the rules. And then I thought, well, you know, my players know some of the rules. And I know how I'm confident enough as a GM now that I can hand wave stuff at the table, you know, and I know what is likely to slow down a game and what isn't. So if it's easily, easily referenced, then, you know, we'll look it up. And if not, I can make a ruling and we can move on and then I could say, okay, here's something that I need to learn for later. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the world's not going to end as long as people are having fun. That's what it's all about. That's why you're giving up your time to do this because it's supposed to be a good time. So you spent some time away from the table, it sounds like, right? You you came back when 4th edition D&D came out. Sounds like you fell out of it maybe when you had headed off to college? Uh, yeah, I headed, I was in college and then I uh, transferred to a college in Southern California in uh, 1988. And I, I tried gaming with some folks there, but, uh, it just, it really, we didn't click as a group. And so I kind of moved on. And the thing that kills me is I'm one of those people who threw away his collection. <laughs> uh, oh no. Yes. I, my parents. Oh uh, no. How are we going to play TFOS now? <laughs> Well, a friend gave me TFOS again, so oh, I have it now. Oh, all right. <laughs> but yeah, I uh, I was out of the house for a few years, and uh, my parents said, uh, you know, do something with all the stuff in our storage unit. And I said, well, you know, I'm in my 20s. Surely I've moved on. I don't need this anymore. So um, some of it I threw away. Some of it I sold at the uh, local game shop to pay for groceries and rent because I was a, you know, starving 20-something. Oh, no. um, and so, yeah, I ended up with uh, with nothing. And over the last few years, I've kind of been replacing the games that I really loved. Uh, so Teenagers from Outer Space I have again. Um, I found a copy of RuneQuest uh, from Chaosium at PAX, uh, which was a great find, and it was pretty reasonably priced. Um, I got back the AD&D hardbacks. And, and I'm starting to get games that I kind of dismissed at the time. So because I was playing... AD&D, you know, advanced Dungeons and Dragons. I considered basic D&D beneath me because it was for babies. Right. <laughs> uh, and then I found uh, I found a copy of the rule books, uh, Moldvay Basic at um, Half Price Books, and I started reading. I was like, "This is great! I I, I love this." Um, whereas AD&D for me now is sort of impenetrable. You know, the things that fourteen year old me really totally understood. 
47 year old me is just like, God, this is, I don't, I don't know how we ever learned this game. <laughs> well, and that just goes to show that there were edition wars even way back in the day, right? When D and D first began and we had advanced and basic, there were, there were already edition wars beginning then. So oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. And well, and it's funny because I, and this is really embarrassing, but I've seen other kind of, you know, the, the old school bloggers, some of them have said the same thing, but when D&D started getting kind of slick looking, uh, the, the era of Dragonlance and Ravenloft. And so, you know, that was kind of where it was heading and it had really high production values. I was like, well, you know, it, it sort of alienated me as a gamer, which was, was silly, but it was kind of like, oh, this doesn't really, it was, it was kind of like the, you're right. It was very much like the edition wars. This doesn't feel like D&D to me. Right. Right. You know, exactly. All this, all this incredibly good artwork and you know full color printing and all this—that's not D and D, bah. <laughs> so you come back to D and D with fourth edition. At what point do you start uh, breaking into the industry and and doing some jobs for them? It, that would be pre fourth edition, actually. So what happened was I, I went to uh, NorwestCon, uh, a uh, a Seattle science fiction gaming fantasy convention, and. Uh, Somebody that I that I had met prior to online prior to moving to Seattle, uh, Jenna Silverstein, uh, and she is a science fiction editor and a gaming editor, and she just kind of knows everybody. And so she introduced me to Wolfgang and Shelley Bauer. Because I wasn't in the hobby during the '90s, I had no idea who Wolfgang Bauer was, uh, <laughs> except that he was this cool guy that you know Jenna knew, and he and his wife were awesome, and so we became friends. And then I found out that he's a he was a very well known D and D designer, and he was editor in chief of Dragon, and and he had a dungeon. And I had been by that time I had left IT, which was which is what I'd been working in for several years, and had gotten into uh, marketing full time as a copywriter because I, before that had been doing IT and then freelancing. And I said, you know, I'd really like to you know earn get some some pocket money by doing some freelancing again. And Wolfgang said, well. I am starting this new company called Open Design, which operates under the patronage model to create role-playing game adventures, uh, specifically for uh, uh, Pathfinder and 3.5. And also, I am starting this new magazine called Cobalt Quarterly, and I could really use some help with marketing. And since you know marketing, uh, then you know, it would be great to have you aboard you know, doing some copywriting and, uh, and, and sell sheets and things like that for me. And I said, sure, that sounds like fun. Um, and so that was how I started was just kind of because it was fun and, uh, and, you know, earned me some pocket change. And that was, the, that was really the beginning of it was through, uh, was through Cobalt. Nice. Nice. That's really interesting. So you weren't even playing at the time that you started to get involved with Wolfgang and Cobalt and everything. You know, for the longest time, uh, working in RPGs was kind of my substitute for playing RPGs. It was a way that I could stay in touch with the hobby and get, you know, get to read gaming books and get to kind of be a part of that world, uh, even though I wasn't wrangling several adults into a room on a weekly or monthly basis and, uh, and, and playing a game for several hours, which is, you know, once, once you're not in high school anymore, that's really hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but after a while, I decided that I would make time to actually play. I mean, and, and like I said, I would play one shots. Like there was a um, a friend uh, would invite me to an, an annual Halloween game at his game store, and that was a lot of fun. And 
there was somebody who ran an 80s cop show RPG. And I played, th- there was actually only room for two players in the RPG. <laughs> and, the, and there were three of us. So the game master had me play all the NPCs. So, um, so I would at you know, the drug Lord, I, I did my Ricardo Montalban impression and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And so that was, that was kind of it. But then, um, when 13th age came along, I said, you know, I, and I, I did the play test and I said, I really want to run a campaign and make time to actually play instead of working and, you know, as a substitute for play, because that's just sad. And so I, I got a group together and started a, uh, a somewhat monthly uh, campaign. So take us, take us back to you're at Cobalt, all right? And how does yes. your career go from there? Take us from that point on to where you are now. Well, it, it, at that point, my career uh, in tabletop takes a really interesting kind of jog mm. because I'm working at. Um, at that point, I'm working at a, uh, a PR agency, um, a, a large PR agency where I'm uh, doing social media and writing and working for Cobalt on the side. And that's pretty much the extent of it. And then uh, we had a, an open house for um, clients and, and potential clients and just cool people at my office. And it turns out that one of my coworkers knows Rob Hainso and Jonathan tweets socially. And... <laughs> And, and she knows that I'm into gaming. And she says, uh, is Jonathan Tweet a big deal? I said, oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Jonathan yeah, Tweet is a huge guy. deal. Says, you know, should I invite Rob Hainso to our party? I said, yes, you should invite Rob Hainso to our party. <laughs> so so uh, we ended up at that, uh, at that open house where Rob Hainso came and, um, and uh, some folks from uh, Tinker House Games, uh, a lot of people who uh, are former Wizards of the Coast. Um, and which is, I mean, if you were working in gaming here in Seattle, then you are almost certainly former wizards of the coast. Right. (laughs) Um, but, uh, and so Rob and I hit it off and then later on he contacted me and said, uh, Jonathan Tweed and I are going to make our own D20 fantasy game called 13th age. And it's kind of our, our dream project. This is the game that we want to play and we have complete creative control over it to do whatever we want. And it's going to be published by Pelgrim Press, which is a really reputable um, publisher in the UK. And we don't know anything about PR. And we don't want to work on PR. And you do, and you understand games, and we would love for you to be on board. And that was, uh, that was interesting. And, and so I, I, I actually thought about it uh, because, uh, you know, whenever you take on more work, it's like, well, you know, it's, this is – you know, I'm already working at Cobalt and have a full-time job. Uh, this is going to be something else. And I just realized, you know, if uh, Rob and Jonathan are making their own game and they want me on board and I say no, I'm going to kick myself for the rest of my life. So you know, I just, I cannot <laughs> say no to that. So, uh, so yeah, I came on board with Fire Opal Media and, uh, and became the community relations guy for 13th Age uh, pretty much right around the first playtest. So almost from the very beginning. Not quite, but almost. Wow. Wow. And that is a great game. It's great for you to have your hands there. It's great for you to be involved with Cobalt Press as well. And now it sounds like you're also doing maybe some writing in the fantasy genre, right? That you talked about a little bit at the beginning. And you're also doing some stuff for Wizards of the Coast. So you've, you've got your hands all over the RPG industry right now, Wade. 
I, I really do. <laughs> and um, it's uh, so, yeah, the, the Wizards of the Coast thing. And again, it's none of these things are completely connected. So Wizards of the Coast came about because the wife of the guy who invited me to play in his fourth edition campaign uh, as an editor who who was working on D&D. She was a former newspaper editor. And so she was uh, and Greg Bilsland uh, told her that uh, they were looking for more uh, more editors for freelance editors. And did she know anyone? And so she connected us. And so that was how I got the, the Watsi gig. And so you, you would think that it's a straight progression of, you know, working with Wolfgang and then through Wolfgang, I meet these other people, but, but, uh, but not so much. I mean, the, the thing that I, I did have in common was that if you say, yes, I've worked at, you know, Cobalt mm-hmm. and I've worked with Wolfgang Bauer. I mean, again, everybody knows Wolfgang and pretty much everybody likes Wolfgang as near as I can tell. And so they're like, and they respect him. Great guy. Yeah. He's a great guy. And he is really, really good at what he does. He's a good publisher. He's a good designer. He's a good writer. And so when you say that you've worked with him, then they know that you have worked with somebody who has, um, you know, high Germanic standards. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and so, you know, that's, I mean, once, and this is the case with just the tabletop industry. I mean, it's so small that once you get any experience under your belt, then, you know, it's, it's not hard to get some experience with somebody that somebody else has heard of. And so, you know, it, it at least gives you a chance to prove yourself. Uh, so, yeah, that was Wizards of the Coast. And, uh, and that was just straight up editing. And then um, I mentioned Tales of the Old Margrave. And when I was uh, when I went to Gen Con, uh, I think the second Gen Con I went to, uh, I actually ran a game uh, as part of the the Kobold crew, and I came up with an old school hack adventure called Danger at Deathless Gulch, uh, and I ran it, and it was set in Kobold Press's World of Midgard, the Midgard campaign setting. And then after I'd been playing Thirteenth Age for a while, and we needed another adventure for Thirteenth Age to run at a convention, I said, "Well, I'll just convert that one over to Thirteenth Age," and it ended up that that adventure. You know, I just, and then the GMs would give me feedback, and I would tweak it and say, "Oh wow, this encounter is is awful. This encounter is too is too dangerous. This encounter is not dangerous enough." And I would tweak it and send it back. And this would happen convention after convention, until at a certain point, I realized that I had a publishable Thirteenth Age adventure uh, set in uh, the Midgard campaign setting, and so I sent it off to Wolfgang. And uh, you heard it here first. It is going to be published uh, probably December or January under the title The Wreck of Volum's Glory. Oh, I can't wait to check that out. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm very excited. So now my name is actually on the cover. (laughs) It sounds like your day is probably full of a lot of work (laughs) because you're touching so many different uh, companies involved with RPGs. Uh, are you, what is, what is a typical day for you like? Well, um, so I mentioned that the 13th age work, uh, led to me doing kind of a PR on retainer for Pelgrin press and they are based in London. So, uh, because of my commute, I, I live so far from work. I actually get up at 5am every morning. Uh, and pretty much the first thing I do is check my email to see if anything has come from the UK that I need to be aware of or need to act on. Right. Uh, also, when we were running the 13th Age in Glorantha Kickstarter, uh, Jeff Richard of Moon Design is in Berlin. And so he was, you know, everything that he was doing was overnight. So we would send him something, you know, during the day or the in the evening. And then he would give feedback at 
one in the morning or three in the morning or something like that. Wow. So, so it's this, yeah, dealing with, with that time difference is just really bizarre. Um, because I know that if I need something or have a question or if I need to tell somebody something, they probably aren't going to see it until the next morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to kind of, uh, you have to kind of, uh, you know, wrap your brain around that. So, yeah, so I check email and see what's up, and then I uh, I go to the train station, and then I do work on the train to work. And that's where I get most of my work done is on the train to and from work, and then uh, kind of during breaks and lunch breaks during my day job. Um, and then I, I get home and uh, and just hang out with my wife and then start again at 5 a.m. the next day. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That is a busy day. But it really you, is. Yeah, yeah, it really is. But it sounds like you also have some time in it for games. You mentioned you run a 13th age game. What's that like? What What's the crux of your campaign? Uh, so my campaign, uh, you can find it on Obsidian Portal. It's called uh, Black March. Nice. We'll link to that in our show notes as well. Okay, thanks. And uh, it actually started, again, before I got into 13th age, right before uh, I found out about 13th age. I had read uh, basic D&D, and I was uh, hearing about Lamentations of the Flame Princess, and I got this idea for a D&D campaign set on kind of a haunted frontier. Uh, it would be kind of bleak and and not quite medieval, a little closer to uh, you know the, the Puritan era, where you would go into a village and everyone would look sort of weird and suspicious, and there would be you know kind of uh, you know weird little idols made of twigs and piles of stones on the outskirts and you don't know what they're all about. And then in the middle of the night, somebody would try to sacrifice you and, <laughs> and you know, things like that. And uh, just kind of a weird, dark, creepy campaign. Normal stuff. And, Normal stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that was just kind of what was in my head at the time. And, um, and then when 13th age came along, I decided that I would run the game using that system. And so I looked at the map of the Dragon Empire, which is the default setting for 13th Age, and there's a little town with no description in the, in the rule book, and it's called Foothold, and it's right on the border of the Diabolist and the Orc Lord. That's kind of all that is standing between them and the rest of the Empire, and I thought that is where that campaign is going to get set. And so... Um, and so I put it. I put it there. My other big influence for that campaign is actually the Coen Brothers uh, version of the movie True Grit. Oh uh, yeah, which yeah, uh, which is a fantastic movie. And agreed. And, yeah, and and at one point, I mean, the whole the whole plot is that uh, you know they're going after this fugitive, and so there's a scene where they kind of cross the river into Indian territory to go after this fugitive, and from there on. The landscape is kind of desolate and haunting, and they meet all sorts of weird, desperate, dangerous people, and bizarre things happen. And I thought to myself, that is D and D. Like that is, it's basically like keep on the borderlands, where you you leave civilization and then go into this weird frontier where there's no law except you know the law you make for yourself. And so that was that was another big inspiration for Black March. So it is kind of western tinged. Also, the paladin does have a shotgun. It's it's a very rare kind of dwarven. Uh, uh, you know, they have gunpowder, they have blunderbusses, and uh, so the paladin was actually given a uh, a magic shotgun. That if you're familiar with the Thirteenth Age system, it uses icon relationship roles with the emperor as ammunition. 
So if you roll a five, if you roll a six with the emperor um, at the beginning of the session, then you can use it to get a bonus to attack and damage. If you roll a five, you can use it, but it also um, you have to make a blood sacrifice to the ghosts of emperors past, and so you take damage too. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> yes, I actually designed it because the player was horribly dice challenged, and so I thought he needs a magic item to make up for that. Well, and I can see why you chose Thirteenth Age as your system for this. Then, um, you know, it's it's obviously it's a smooth, elegant system, but also it sounds like sort of the the icons would help contribute to the strange atmosphere that you you want to create. You know, the the creepy horrorness of it all. Yeah, absolutely. I one thing is that Thirteenth Age as a system mechanically really hits that spot just between basic D and D and first edition AD and D. That you know, that spot that I'm familiar with, and I don't really have. Like I said, I don't really read a lot of rule books now, and my day is pretty much jam packed, and so I'm really looking for rules medium or rules light games. And so Thirteenth Age is something that again, I was able to learn pretty quickly. And if there's something that I don't know, then I can make a ruling on it and say, you know what, I'll let you do that. Which, which for me is, I mean, that's how we played D&D back in the day anyway, is that somebody said, can I leap over that wall? It's like, yeah, okay, you know, go ahead and roll. I'll, you know, I, I didn't really look it up in a book. I just sort of, sort of made a, a reasonable ruling as best I could. And so, and so it feels like a very familiar system to me. Um, but the, innovations such as the icons uh really i i mean i'm i i know that i'm a paid shill for 13th age okay i'm inherently untrustworthy <laughs> however uh but i mean i really love the mechanics i love backgrounds god i love backgrounds uh, and i love the icon roles and uh even though they're kind of hard to wrap your head around they're even hard for me to wrap my head around but i love what they bring to the game and yeah i mean when i Again, when I saw that there was a spot on the map which was right on the border of, you know, kind of the the queen of of summoning demons into the world and the orc lord, who is this relentless force for chaos, and the idea that the icons are these powerful beings who are sort of playing this very dangerous game with each other um, of of politics and power. Uh, I love that Thirteenth Age. The feeling of Thirteenth Age is that the world is just on the brink of complete disaster, and in the end, it's all going to be down to the uh, to, to the players, the player characters, uh, as to what happens with that. And so that is just uh, I just I just love that feeling, and the feeling in my campaign is always that you know, things are steadily on their way to becoming much, much worse than they are now. And and so suspense is constantly building up, or at least I hope it is. You can ask my players. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, I I want to play in that right now. Like, I want to go create a Black March game right now uh, and join, <laughs> join the Black March universe. So, and 13th Age is really great. Uh, I don't think any of our listeners would, would argue with you about that, especially... Uh, the one unique thing, I love to go online and just read message boards where people compile all their different one unique things um, that they've come across, and people get really creative with that. It's very cool. It's very, very cool. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, the one unique thing is fantastic. And it, and, and I love that that's something in the game where it, it's kind of the solution to the let me tell you about my character problem, mm -hmm. because we all want to tell people about our favorite characters, but... I think very few of us actually want to hear about other people's favorite characters. 
Um, and the one unique thing is something that is just really fun to share and to hear. So, you know, if somebody is playing, th- like, oh, I played a demo of 13th Age at Gen Con, mm-hmm. and I'll ask, what was your one unique thing? And they'll say, oh, I was a wizard who, due to an accident in magic school, was is coated with a thin layer of frost. And I'll say, that's awesome. I love that. <laughs> that is. That's gr- I, I never even heard that one, so that's awesome, too. I, I, ran, a, I ran a demo uh, once where um, a player's one unique thing was he can't tell the difference between dragons, and he had a conflicted relationship with the great gold worm and the three because he couldn't tell them apart. <laughs> that's really cool, and I love when people take that sort of thing and you know they, they really run with it and, and go deep with their character. I think that's pretty cool. When you are running your game, do you have any special house rules that you like to bring in? Like I said, I, I'm willing to negotiate with players if, it's, if it leads to something awesome. I've recently been experimenting with icon relationship checks. So I've been using them pretty successfully in order to determine story arcs and what's happening in the campaign. So if somebody rolls, you know, a six with the Elf Queen, then I can find a way to insert the Elf Queen into that adventure in some sort of beneficial way. Um, That's one way to use icon checks. Another way is for the players to use them and say, I am going to use my relationship with this incredibly powerful person to my advantage and make something happen or solve a challenge. And and if I – so because – you can't really bring every icon relationship into a scenario under normal circumstances, especially if like a lot of them roll, you know, and make their checks. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been handing out tokens. I picked up a bunch of campaign coins at uh, Gen Con this year. And so when people roll the five or a six, I will hand out a shiny little trinket that jingles when you throw it down on the table and say, okay, here, you know, like, I don't know what to do with your icon check right now. So go ahead and take this and let me know if you want to spend it to accomplish something. And the reason that I got campaign coins is because I tried it before with just telling people that they could do that. But without something sitting in front of them as a physical representation of that ability they have in the game, it's just hard for them to remember to use it, I think. And so when they actually have a coin that they can spend to get something from me, um, then that made a difference. And so uh, in this last session... Um, somebody was encountering some bureaucratic hassle and one of them took his coin and it was a five. It was a result of a five. So that's a benefit with a complication. And he said, we really need to get to this prison on the other side of the dragon empire to see this person. And we cannot deal with any bullshit red tape. (laughs) Here, here is my coin. And I was like, well, here's what I can do for you. <laughs> let's, let's make a deal. And so uh, that's actually uh, really effective. So that's, and that's something that um, I actually learned from uh, Sly Flourish, uh, Mike Shea. Yeah. Uh, is that he has, he has found a way to use shiny tokens in order to get people to spend icon points. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I think Mike Shea does that. So he does indeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're playing a lot of 13th Age. Is there anything else that you find time to play, even if it's just a one shot or anything like that? Any board games you love playing? Uh, I haven't really found a game in a long time. Um, a, I was playing in a uh, Cthulhu Tech game. So originally, um, my group was alternating every month where we would play Cthulhu Tech and then 13th Age. 
And then, uh, but the Cthulhu Tech campaign just kind of stalled and, and we're kind of on pause at the moment. So it's just been 13th Age. Uh, somebody actually invited me to play uh, Warhammer fantasy role-playing the other day <laughs> um, and join a campaign. So he's hoping to get that started up this winter. And uh, if that happens, then uh, I'll finally get to try that out after first hearing about it in 1987 or yeah, whatever that wow. was. <laughs> and it's interesting. I've been hearing interesting things about it from listening to the uh, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff podcast, mm-hmm. uh, which is also a fantastic podcast by Ken Height and uh, Robin D. Laws. And they talk about D&D as uh, kind of a stand-in for the American West, where it's heavily armed people wandering around no man's land, kind of making their own rules. And how Warhammer fantasy role-playing is the European version of that, because it's kind of a stand-in for the Thirty Years' War. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. It uh, actually just won an any award. Yeah, I, I saw that. So everybody should go check them out. Support the podcast community, guys, because it's great. What's coming up for you? We we heard about some of your projects. What's in the pipeline right now? What are you working on that you want to talk about? Well, uh, the big project that is coming up is for Cobalt Press, and this is also a 13th Age project. Um, so Ash Law, who runs the organized play for 13th Age and is responsible for most of the adventures coming out of that, uh, and he's currently working on uh, 13th Age in Glorantha. He's working on Shards of the Broken Sky. He's just, he's just a machine for turning out 13th Age stuff. Uh, so he did a conversion of the Midgard Bestiary from Cobalt Press. And I edited that. So that was another bit of editing that I did. Uh, and then Cobalt Press came out with a massive tome of spells and schools of magic and sorcerer's bloodlines for Pathfinder called Deep Magic. It was a Kickstarter book. And so Ash, because he is completely crazy, on top of every, on top of everything else he's doing, said, "I want to convert deep magic over to Thirteenth Age." And Wolfgang said, "Okay, go for it." So, so he just <laughs> he just spent a month like cranking out you know deep magic spells uh, converted to Thirteenth Age, and then uh, and then I edited them, and so I've just turned around the final proofread of the laid out version of Thirteenth Age for. Uh, or Deep Magic 13th Age Compatible Edition. And so that is, uh, that's gone to final layout and uh, hopefully is going to be released in November. You can actually pre-order it right now from coboldpress.com. And now that that's kind of quieted down a little bit and the 13th Age in Glorantha the Kickstarter has ended um, and the Dracula Dossier Kickstarter has not yet started, <laughs> I'm going to start to... I'm going to post some sneak previews from uh, Deep Magic 13th Age on the Cobalt uh, Press blog. Oh, fun. Um, in fact, there's one spell, um, I believe it's called Murder Ball, and it basically lets you conjure the uh, the sphere from Phantasm with the little uh, razor blades in it and the drilling uh, blood-spouting uh, thing on it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Terrifying. Uh, Stuff of nightmares. <laughs> Yes, well, you can you can actually conjure that and send it after your enemies if, uh, with Deep Magic 13th Age. <laughs> so I think for a, a Halloween blog post, I'm going to put that up there along with some other really, really creepy uh, spells. So that's Deep Magic for 13th Age. That's coming out uh, very, very soon. And uh, like I said, uh, The Wreck of Volan's Glory is also in the pipeline, and that's going to come after some other... It's, it's coming after uh, Deep Magic... And the Cobalt Guide to Combat, and I believe Freeing Nethus is a Pathfinder adventure that's coming out from Christina Stiles. And once those 
are out, then uh, then Volan's Glory is going to be out. Oh wow! But yeah, Deep Magic has Deep Magic is really something. It has uh, hundreds, literally hundreds of new spells. It has uh, new class talents for Thirteenth Age that let any class cast wizard spells, wow. or specifically Deep Magic wizard spells. And yeah, which can be a train wreck if done improperly. And fortunately, uh, because Ash worked so closely with Rob Hainso, he had an opportunity to show those to Rob and get his feedback. And and Rob said, yeah, those are definitely going to break the game completely. Uh, uh, here, here's, here's how you can do it so it doesn't break the game completely. So uh, that's going to be very cool. There's also guidelines on creating your own, own school of magic. There are something like 30 sample schools of magic, each with their own spell lists, and then there are then we have a big chunk of spells. Uh, there are campaign hooks as well. So if you want to run a ley lines campaign, or you want to run a campaign where people are going all over the map hunting for mana stones and kind of an Indiana Jones sort of pulp adventure quest, or if you want to do Atlantean magic technology vril magic uh, campaigns, there's a, a section on that, uh, as well as some advice on how to use spells as campaign hooks. And uh, and how to make magic customizable for your own campaign. So it's really it's really a pretty epic undertaking. Uh, and so yeah, Ash wrote it, um, con- converted it over from Pathfinder. Uh, I edited it, and then uh, Cal Moore, who also edited well Thirteenth Age. I mean, he's the the chief guy who edits Thirteenth Age stuff. Uh, he also took a a pass at it, a proofreading pass, but also gave it kind of a a developer's eye to point out some spells where he said this is unclear this seems kind of wonky maybe you should fix it this way and so a lot of people heavily involved in 13th age have had their eyes on this and i really hope that people like it and can steal from it uh just just plunder it to their heart's content (laughs) well i will definitely be plundering from it and and checking it out it sounds awesome so uh and it sounds not only like it's just a conversion, but you guys actually did even more work creating new systems and advice for creating your own schools of magic and that sort of thing. It's it's more than just porting over all the spells in Deep Magic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was the same with the Midgard Bestiary because, uh, you know, it was one thing to just convert over monsters from 4th edition. I mean, okay, big whoop. Uh, I guess that would be fine, but we also added... Uh, magic items so there are magic items associated with monsters and every monster came with adventure ideas um and there was a section of if you you know fight this monster and kill it what are you going to find on it i mean not just treasure but what sorts of things will this monster actually carry or have stored in its lair uh so anything that we could do to make that uh you know more interesting and contribute something more and that's really it's very 13th agey is you know it's not just you know how many you know, what does it take to kill this monster and, and what ways can it hurt you? All those, those are wonderful and interesting things, but also <laughs> what, what's the deal with this monster? What's its story? How does it fit into the world? What kinds of things does it want? What doesn't it want? Um, you know, what is it doing when it's not fighting adventurers? And, uh, and those could be really interesting things. When can people expect uh, that to, uh, to start appearing? Uh, you can pre-order Deep Magic right now. Nice. Uh, Deep Magic 13th Age Compatible Edition at CobaltPress.com. We are racing to get it uh, into print, hopefully for a November release. Um, wow. I have, I have learned in my experience working on 13th Age that uh, 
printing and binding and distributing are filled with hazards and unexpected pitfalls. Uh, so, you know, things will, there will be problems at the printer or there will be problems at the printer that the printer may not tell you about. Uh, sometimes you'll think things have been shipped out and then three weeks later, you'll find that they were not shipped. When, when customers start saying, Hey, where's my book? And you say, well, haven't you gotten it yet? And then you go to the, you know, <laughs> you go to the printer and say, Oh yeah, we thought you guys didn't want us to ship that yet. So, <laughs> so when I say November, what I mean is I really, really hope it's November. If not, then it'll be sometime soon after November. But that's the target date. Um, the Midgard Bestiary, which I just talked about, uh, you can order right now at coboldpress.com. You can also uh, get it from drive-thru and I think from Paizo as well, uh, paizo.com, uh, if that's what you want to do. So, yeah, um, this stuff is uh, is all out there. And I mentioned the, uh, the upcoming Dracula dossier Kickstarter. Um, if and when I get time to run more games, uh, I really want to run Kenneth Heights Knights Black Agents, which is spies fighting vampires. Uh, you're the spies. Vampires are always the bad guy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he, he, Ken Height likes his vampires evil and with a stake through their heart. And so, <laughs> so you're basically playing, you know, Jason Bourne from the Bourne identity, but the evil conspiracy is headed up by vampires. And so you're, you're banging around Europe, um, you know, fighting Renfields and ghouls and, uh, and, and vampire minions and working your way up to the top of the, uh, of the conspiracy pyramid. And it just sounds completely awesome. I played a 20 minute demo of it at Gen Con. That was one of the best 20 minutes of gaming I've ever had. And it was just, it was a car chase through the streets of uh, Krakow, Poland, chasing after a vampire minion who had a stolen briefcase with a nuclear device in it. And, <laughs> and it, and it played just like mission impossible, born identity, you know, a bond film. I mean, it was just really, it blew me away. So, uh, the Dracula dossier is coming up, uh, it's going to be kickstarted and, the premise is the, the product is going to be this. Uh, it will include a copy of Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's called Dracula Unredacted. And the idea is that Bram Stoker's Dracula is a heavily edited, highly fictionalized account of a failed British intelligence attempt to recruit Dracula in the 1800s. <laughs> and things went horribly, horribly wrong. And oh, that is so cool. And so Dracula Unredacted puts all those parts back and has notes from um, British intelligence explaining what was really going on in all these scenes that you're so familiar with. Um, and then there are more annotations from uh, British intelligence agents in the 1940s and the mid-70s and then uh, 2011 because people keep coming across these old files and saying, oh, hey – you know, the Nazis are, you know, threatening to invade England, but there's this Dracula guy that we could activate and maybe we can make a deal with him and things go horribly wrong. And then in 1977, they try it again and it goes horribly wrong. And then 2011, they think, hey, maybe we can get Dracula to join us in the fight against Al Qaeda. And it goes horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so that's actually the player, the player's handout is the, you know, quote unquote, original unedited draft of Dracula. And then uh, there is an accompanying set of game materials called the Director's Dossier that lets you run a campaign where your agents are going up against Dracula's organization, and it ties into that book. And so that's, uh, that's going to be kickstarted probably later in October. Wow, that sounds really cool. I definitely want to check that out. I will be contributing to that Kickstarter. So <laughs> yeah, 
Uh, and keep your eyes peeled for that because we don't have much time left in October already. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. It was, it was actually, again, talking about things going wrong. It was supposed to launch in mid-October, but then uh, uh, life and business kind of happened. And so it needed to be pushed back a little bit. So hopefully it will be coming out. Uh, I don't know when this uh, podcast is going to drop. Maybe it's out already. Check Kickstarter. That's right. And if it is already out, we will definitely link to it in the show notes as well. Um, so, Wade, where can people find you if they're looking for you and they want your pearls of wisdom? <laughs> um, I I have no pearls of wisdom, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm on Twitter uh, as Wade Rocket with two Ts. Uh, you can find me on Google+. Plus. Uh, those are probably the two best places to connect with me, although I'm on Twitter more than anything just because it's, it's easy. Um, and I also tweet as 13th age and I post stuff to uh, Facebook, uh, as, and Google plus as 13th age, as well as Pelgrane press. Usually, um, when the Pelgrane, uh, press crew, uh, during UK working hours, they're going to be on those accounts. And then I pick up and you can usually tell the difference because I use exclamation points and Simon Rogers does not. Ah. So, <laughs> So I'm kind of the the wild-eyed, arm-waving American saying, hey, here's this cool thing. You should get it. And he's very sort of dry and and uh, and not like that. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, Twitter. Twitter is definitely the best place. And if you, uh, if you tweet at 13th Age, then know that I have seen it and I have appreciated it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on Gamer to Gamer today, Wade. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I really, this has been a lot of fun. Guys, if you have a question or comment about the show, you can reach out to me on Twitter at James Intricasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can go to the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. And a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the 5th edition world that I'm building. It's at worldbuilderblog.me. Everyone, thanks for listening, and thanks to Wade Rocket for being on the show. Also, many thanks to Jeff Reiner and everyone at The Tome Show. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Remember, never give up, because life is a game, and eventually you gotta roll a 20.